1: All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Compliance Guy. Today is Tuesday, the 21st of February in the great year of 2023, and that means it's time for another Hashtag Terry episode on The Compliance Guy.
2: Hey, doing, my friend? Good morning. I'm doing good, or good afternoon to those of you that are on the East Coast.
1: Yeah. And to each and every single one of y'all tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us, thank you so much for spending just a few minutes with Terry and I. Uh, each and every single week as we get to talk about all things coding, billing, documentation, and compliance. So today, Terry, um, we're going to talk about the fact that the ending of the PHE is not just for telehealth, but it is for a lot of different things that are going on. And with that said, let me go ahead and get us started on some of these things that folks need to be aware of.
2: Okay, so the first thing I really want to hopefully add to our listeners, who's in charge of updating this information? Because one of the things that I have found is, not just with coding, billing, everything, is that it seems like when things are going to be effective January 1st, around December 31st, people are like, oh shoot, I forgot to train. I even have payers you know, calling me and saying, yeah, we kind of forgot that part. Or it just, everybody doesn't realize how time flies once something's announced. And so remember when they announced way back in January that the public health emergency was going to end in May, and now we're towards the end of February, a month's passed. So you have to get started and understand what's actually going to be implemented, what's going to be extended. And we've been focusing so much on the telehealth piece that not everybody is aware that There's other pieces that are going to make a huge impact to practices, to hospitals, to your providers. And so, you know, who's going to be in charge of dissecting the CAA, which is the Consolidated Appropriations Act that was now enforced by the Omnibus Act. Remember, Congress tends to have layers. And so you need, you need to know what, what is um, correct now. So let's kind of dive in. First of all, for those of you that are Medicaid Um, providers. okay, Medicaid patients were allowed in basically an extension of not having to um, be predetermined or qualified um, for their Medicaid. Once they were in and the public health emergency was announced, they could keep their Medicaid and didn't have to drop it, even if they got a job even if they had employer-sponsored health insurance, even if they went on an exchange, which to me, that's wrong. That's that's double dipping and nobody has the money for that, but they allowed it. But um, what's going to happen? That was between four and 14 million people. That's a lot of people. And if they didn't qualify, so they're not going to qualify or they may not qualify. Let me back up. May not qualify for their coverage any longer. Um, as of April 1st, states were allowed to now start the uh, redetermination process, so that's in just a short six weeks, and so they'll have to manually check because there might see be some. You don't want denials after the fact with a patient coming in and showing you an old card or an old treatment authorization paper, and basically they are not they don't have coverage. So this is going to be important for those Medicaid practices and hospitals to. They they were kind of under the flexibilities, they were just like, oh, it's fine. They have coverage because they had it during the PHE. Now you're going to probably have to hire a staff or at least direct that, um, that task to a staff that is on top of it. Uh, the next thing and Sean and I know this is, this is why I think the public health emergency was extended as long as it was. And that is the hospitals have been getting a 20% increase uh, for COVID treatment payments. And that's gonna end once the, once the uh, public health emergency ends. Because remember, it, they were getting that so that they could offset some of the capacity at their hospital. And also because they couldn't get in elective surgeries because those were put on, you know, the side and that's where hospitals make their money. That's where physicians make their money. That's where practices make their money are elective surgeries. So when you're having to deal with long-term COVID treatment, they're like, okay, well, we'll give you a bump in that, um, you know, whether they in the hospital, but that's going to go away. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects patients who come to the hospital for COVID. One of the other things is the 1135 waivers. So some of the um, under those waivers, one thing, one of the things that will relax and CMS said it on their recent call that I mentioned last week when we were talking about this on the Compliance Guy roundtable is that they will not extend the supervision rules. They said no, no, no. The supervision rules, whether it be incident two or the um, the rules as far as supervising diagnostic tests. Um, th- we're talking about the non-physician providers. They've really enjoyed some <laughs> relaxation on things over the last three years. And then also, yeah, over they've had the most flexibilities. Health. Oh, it's ridiculous. And rela- overseeing home health services, things like that. Those are going to go away where it's now going to have to be physician supervision, uh, physicians, the one that, you know, certifies home health. And this is for protection. This is for safety. So, You know they've noticed that relaxing some of those rules may have been helpful. They're they're not absolute as far as safety of the patient. And I'm gonna I know I've got a few here, but the one I wanted to throw back to you, Sean, because I actually don't understand this one, or I should say I wasn't. This isn't something that's in my wheelhouse. And this was the Stark uh, physician and self referral law flexibilities, including the right to make less than fair market value rental arrangements as long as those were for COVID. Uh, that ends with the PHE. What is that about? Do you know about that?
1: Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So what? What is that, like that the and was?
2: Stuff or? I wasn't sure.
1: Yeah. So there, there was, there was, um, there were a lot of arrangements that were allowed because they had to be made very quickly, and they were not held to the same standards. As normal contracts would be when you're engaging in, let's say, a rebate program or in a purchase program where you are required to have contracts that meet either commercial reasonableness, or fair market value. Oh. And once the once the public health emergency ends, A and all contracts that you have with vendors irrespective of when they went into effect will have to be re-evaluated to ensure that they are both commercially reasonable and they meet the definition of fair market value
2: um that's gonna really put a burden on administrators they're gonna have to really start getting out those contracts
1: (laughs) yeah now as as that as it pertains to star. Okay. So that yeah. that's the the contracting with vendors. Now, as it relates to Stark, if remember Stark is the self-referral law. So if you own another entity or you have an immediate family member that has ownership in another entity and you are making referrals to those entities, that could be a violation of Stark law. Now, there are um safe harbors, if you will, that allow for these self-referrals to take place, but they have to be, they have to meet certain conditions. And So is this like, is of like those an
2: ASC? Is this like an ASC referral where you have to give the well patient an be. option? Could be a DME okay. company. Okay, yep. gotcha. It could
1: be a DME company. It could be, uh, uh, um, you know, a, a compounding pharmacy, anything so like that, where there's ownership. Where yep. you've got financial there's interest. ownership in between gotcha. these. That's right. Financial okay. ownership, whatever you want to relate it as. Okay. So, under the PHE, they allowed for some of these entities where there was cross-pollination if you will or, you know, dual ownership um that you could you could enter into these agreements without them reaching fair market value. So, they could be less than or higher than what you would normally see outside of the public health emergency so when that ends any entity that your providers and or their family members have ownership in where there's a referral between the practice and these businesses those contracts also will have to be reevaluated because now they will be required to meet fair market value
2: okay now something came up that um, I was reading through when I, cause I'm, I'm the one that's dissecting a lot of this stuff because, you know, I do a Medicare update for a couple of companies. And one of the things that I noticed is there's something called a prep act. And I actually didn't realize it was a separate um, act or separate rule regulation. I thought it was under the cares act, but it isn't. And that was where liability immunity was for pharmacists exists for pharmacists and providers that have expired licenses that have been ordering and administering Covid vaccines, and they said that's going to end with the PHE. Uh, there was something that said there was an exception if the um, pharmacist works for a hospital uh, system uh, and the patient meets certain guidelines. But as a rule, it's going to end. One thing I didn't realize is I thought the rule was that they were even allowed to do it. I didn't realize there was a liability waiver under the second um, act. Did you know about that? Is that kind of like the P the uh, emergency use authorization for the pharmaceutical companies where they don't have any liability for the you know vaccine I, I this was weird to me yeah
1: th- this is one that I did not have a lot of familiarity with um not me either I just I, I thought I do a little bit of pharmacy stuff just not a lot so I, I I don't I don't know that I'd be the right person to opine on this one but okay um, I just thought it
2: was interesting that they they seem to create these these acts if you will but I don't feel like it makes the front page news. It's just something that all of a sudden you see this and you're like, Whoa, what? Yeah.
1: You know, this is, this is a situation where, you know, because there was a shortage of providers and we had such a crisis that was going on. They said, listen, any of you all that could come out of the woodwork and you can assist us with, you know, um, um, you know, ordering, you know, uh, Testing for people, or you know, filling prescriptions, or whatever, we're willing to waive any liability in these situations, just so we have, you know, enough help. Uh, because you know, as as you recall, and as our listeners, I'm sure all recall, you know, we ran into uh, another crisis during the PHE, which was, you know, the continued shortage of providers.
2: Well, and the mandates were that, able that to, people didn't want to yeah, do. You know,
1: that's so, right. Yeah. So, you know, they they allowed for uh, flexibility for retired providers um, who let their licenses lapse or those who went to another industry, you know, for whatever reason and their licenses lapsed, they allowed them to, you know, function as if they were still licensed providers without having to bear the liability.
2: Well, and remember, listeners, um, what we're talking about are two different things as far as Crossing state lines is now been gone by, there's only four states that allow it without being licensed in that state. So, you know, Sean and I have talked about that part before as part of the public health emergency, where if you were a physician in New Jersey and you're, you know, the snowbird, your patient went to Florida, you were allowed to see them during the height of the pandemic, which was 2020 and maybe a little bit into 2021 until the vaccines came out. But that most states, and I was surprised, California, they're like, no, 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 you have to now be licensed in the state you practice. So any of those retirees that came out of retirement that are no longer licensed, you better not be practicing medicine or you're doing it without a license. And so that's different than administering COVID vaccines. Okay, so that is is under a separate umbrella. Um, One of the things I did notice when they talk about a lot of these flexibilities and Here's the government passing the buck. Whenever they say anything about, well, this is going to end, or this may end, or uh, this should end, it's funny they don't just they're they're not they're big on mandates when it benefits, but when you're trying to get a clarification when it's benefiting the physician, you can't get it. They do leave it up to states. So I think not only is when I mentioned at the start of this, you know, who's in charge of this, not only do you need to read through the. Um, Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, and then how it how the omnibus bill has, uh, what their enforcement is there, you need to make sure that you are specific on your state. So then you've got to sit down, and you've got to say, okay, where does this fall for my state, whether you're, you know, wherever you are. Um, and I don't know, Sean, if you put it on your website for the compliance guy, I know it's on mine at terryfletcher.net. I have the, my latest article up there, it'll have the the link to your state, what they allow and what they don't. So um, if you don't have it, yeah. Shane, feel free to, to place that up there. I think you might have it. I know I send it over to you. Yeah, but, um, but state information, I mean, remember, we're the United States of America. So states have a lot of autonomy when it comes to what they will allow, what they won't allow. The government is just about government patients. So Medicaid, Medicare, and then they even say, well, even though medic and through Medicare we say that, you know, we're going to allow a doctor to see a patient's cross state lines. If that state doesn't agree with us, then you have to follow what the state says. So that that's a really big deal when it comes to um, not only your liability but your malpractice. So there's well, so remember many we talk parts.
1: about it. Yeah, we talk about it all the time, right? We do. We, we talk about preemption. And remember, if your state laws are more restrictive or stringent than what the federal government has established, then you have to comply with your state laws. Remember, under the preemption laws, states can never make it any easier than what the federal government has established as a threshold, but they can make it as restrictive as they want. So be
2: aware of that. Right. Well, and this kind of, it reminds me of what we were talking about on the Compliance Guy Roundtable um, today at our special episode that it was, you know, about m- mitigating risk. You know, one of the things right now, I mean, we're in February, but it's going to take you listeners, it's going to take you a long time to at least a month to weed through all this. I mean, I'm, I'm still about a third of maybe two, th- two thirds of the way through the, you know, CAA, and at some point you just want to skim it. But then all of a sudden I found this prep act. And then I find this other stuff about, you know, um incident two. And I find this thing about um supervision. And it's like, well, I guess I better go back and actually read word for word the context. You can't expect Yeah, leave you- the
1: skimming. Yeah, <laughs> leave the skimming of the documents to the politicians, the ones yeah. who put it into the legislation yeah. and sign it.
2: Right. Here's the four thousand dollar bill and or four thousand page bill and um one trillion dollar bill, right? Um, that we're gonna go All ahead right. and pass, but we haven't really read it. But um, we have to read it because it seems like in the provider space, we are more liable than than what some of the entities who create some of these policies are. And so it, oh, it's absolutely. really it's really important to not only do your homework, but then make your you gotta you've got to update your policies now. So how many of you and I'm I'm this is a rhetorical question, but how many of you our listeners here? changed when they realized that the public health emergency, remember it was, it was renewed 12 times, wasn't going to end after the third time you realized, okay, this isn't going to end anytime soon. So we have to actually have a temporary policy in our office of this is how we're going to handle telehealth This is how we're going to handle physicians coming out of retirement or helping out or how we're going to handle our mid levels. And you know, how we're going to, are we really going to do incident two when they say we can do it virtually, which made no sense to me, still doesn't. So how are we going to handle that? Now you've got to backtrack. Even though some things were, are flexible and will be extended to a point, you have to remember not everything, to a point through 2024, you still have to know how to start rolling things back. Um, one of the things that I, that's ringing in my ear that I keep hearing from CMS and last week's CMS HHS call was the flexibilities are there until they're not needed anymore. So how can you prove that you still needed it if you're following OSHA, if everybody's vaccinated and boosted a million times and you have all the masks, you have everything in place for protection, then how can you basically support a phone call if that patient could have come in in person? You know, those kinds of things are in my head thinking, are they going to use that statement? Are they going to use their inference to that uh, against a provider? We don't know. Um, the other thing that came up on our on the compliance guy um, earlier was the fact that you have to also make sure at this point, what are you going to do for telehealth? Are you going to invest in, you know turning on a switch within your EMR that has a HIPAA compliant platform? or are you going to not do it anymore because you're not going to be able to use Skype or FaceTime on a patient's phone that they've been used to now for three years? You know, Sean, one thing that's funny to me, people don't understand why in some um, employers only give two weeks paid vacation at a time. You know, if you want to take a month's vacation, like, well, we really can't lose you for a month. It's because anything you do for two weeks is a habit. So just think how long we've been doing the PHE, three years. So this has now become know, very insane, habit right? For me, Yeah. And so having people, and I feel for the practices out there, having people having to deal with, you know, something they're like, wait, this is a new normal. It's like, no, it's really not. Now it's, let's go back to things are, I mean, I, I've heard the whole thing. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't close that door, blah, blah, blah. But we cannot continue to have this kind of money spent on these open door policies that have no rules. It, it's, it would bankrupt the Medicare system in three years. So we we have to make sure that now regulatory you know, um, rules that were in place before that we're understanding that we're going to have to now enforce them. And I know, and the government is, I think the the biggest thing, and, and Sean, I know you've had to do this when, you know, you've audited a practice is that the timeline is going to be so wacky. It's like, what was from March, 2020 to, December 2020, and then what was invalid from you know January to this date in 2021, and then from the end of 2021 to 2022. I mean, there's so many cutoff dates that weren't calendar years, and, and and again, they're doing it to us again, May 11th. So, May 12th is the start of something new. So, you know, I think that's going to be a really big deal for practices.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. I think the biggest takeaway, Terry, really is that you know, and and, and you we kind of laughed about it, right? Because we've been in the thick of this thing now for, you know, three plus years. And we have had to adapt and acclimate to an environment that 99.9% of us have never had to function in. Right. Right. And, and it became the new norm. Right. And now with the end of the PHE, right. In May, People are asking questions like, well, what does this mean?
2: What does this mean? Right. What do you mean? And,
1: what do you mean? We have to go back to normal. What is right. normal? You, you, this, it, what do you mean? This isn't normal. Right. And and right. it's been, it, these have been very difficult, dis- you know, discussions.
2: Well, I think the one thing that kind of surprised me, I actually, it made me angry and, and I'll just put it out there. I know that you have your coding credential and you know, I've got 12 or, 500 of them, I don't know, but we, but I know that your focus is more on fraud, waste and abuse and, and compliance and things like that. Even though you have your coding stuff, I know that's not your focus. Well, one of the things it is, it is one of mine. So one of the things that came out when the, um, the COVID diagnoses were first put out there and ICD-10 when it used to be ICD-9, these were never updated except once a year, it's October 1st. And well, now we get them updated April Because of the pandemic, they're now updating things April and October. Well, one of the things that still, and I'll just put it this way, frost my cookies, (laughs) is the fact that they basically told everybody to code differently for this one problem than everything else. They said that, in the rules, it even said if your provider thinks the patient thinks, thinks the patient has COVID that you can report it. And I said, well, it has to have something that shows a positive. No, let's say you even had a positive test result or a, a negative test result. They said, but if your physician feels that it's COVID, but this was a false positive then, or a false negative, then you can build it. I'm like, right. But I, I mean, it was so hard for me to get my head around that being a certified coder, you know, a gazillion times for the last well because we always
1: be, It doesn't make sense. Right. Because we, Right, because we always think about the fact that we don't code for suspected, probable, or rule out in the outpatient setting. We only do that for the inpatient setting.
2: Well, so it was question. It's a new
1: way of training.
2: Well, and so then what came out, and this was, I think, just absolute BS. I'll just use the, the 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 abbreviation, is that I was very loud about this being a problem in 2020. I was like, this is wrong. This and I was, you know, with the American Hospital Association because they're the ones that helped enforce some of this rule, and you know, and a lot of these organizations were happy that this came out because it was so easy. Now I'm like, you guys, this doesn't make sense that you don't have to be able to prove that this patient has this diagnosis, and it's going to inflate numbers just for money. You know, all I could see is that you're going to put this COVID diagnosis on something, and now the hospital is going to say, oh, I get my 20. percent Well, then I don't know if you saw this, actually, I wrote an article on it, but. This is what was being discussed in April of 2020. And then all the time that they just kept doing it. And then in September of 2020, they realized that this was a problem. And so then CMS comes out and says, okay, well, we're still going to stand by what we asked CDC to do as far as the diagnosis direction. But if you don't have a positive test, you don't get your money. So (laughs) they're saying, (laughs) and we're going to go check. So first they're saying for this eight month period that yes, you know, you can code it this way, but if you do, and we go and audit this, um, based on the fact that we're giving you extra money and there's no positive test, you don't get your money and they start taking refunds. So I'm like, you know, you could have, you could have made this a point saying only positive tests are going to get that. So just bringing back to the topic today of being prepared. I wonder, and I haven't heard anything about this. I wonder if that's going to change the fact that now you have to go back to traditional coding rules that you have to have a positive, you know, because remember, Sean, you and I talked about this last week, they're saying once the public health emergency ends at that towards the end of the 2023, that it's voluntary now to submit positive or negative um, testing information, you don't have to do it like it was mandated before right now during the PHE so they can keep track of numbers and all that and where funding's going and all that but it's only voluntary and the numbers
1: were still wrong and the they numbers were, still, were wrong. still wrong yeah the num- yeah, wrong. not only were they wrong people are now coming out and openly admitting from the government we miscounted, miscounted. the numbers yeah we over we over I'm not going to use the word exaggerated because somebody's going to be like, "Oh, Sean." Stop. Yeah, I know. Me too. They, they they overestimated the number of COVID-related deaths. Listen, not playing this thing down. It's no. been a terrible situation. A lot of wonderful people I my wife and I lost a very very good friend. I mean, heartbreaking. You know, guy was 48 or 49 years old. Um and you know here today and gone tomorrow and we still think about it all the time um he was the he was the manager of our we have food we have a food chain here it's called Publix which is our shopping market it's very similar to like what you have on the west coast with Vons and yeah. Safeway and stuff like that so um you know and we were in the store and and it was crazy cuz you know i said to him you know And I'm not going to say his name. I said, but I said, you don't look real good. He goes, "Eh, you know, I haven't been feeling good. He goes, and just kind of tongue in cheek. He goes, ah, probably have COVID. And like two days later, his brother texted my wife and he was like, so-and-so's in the hospital and he's on a ventilator and Uh. they don't think he's going to make it. And he was gone like 24 hours later. So. You know, the 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 woman who, one of the women who works for my wife um, got COVID. She was on a ventilator, on and off the ventilator, three or four different times. They didn't think she was going to make it. Thank God she made it, and she's doing well. So I don't want anybody to listen to what I'm saying, and they're going to be like, oh, here you go. No, I, I take this public health emergency very seriously. Remember, I have underlying systemic disease processes myself. I was scared to death. Right. You know, but as more and more science became available, as more and more healthcare providers who were on the front lines were raising concerns,
2: I had to listen. Right. Well, and then we had the similar thing with a family member. And this is what kind of, this is probably what made my head explode in 2020. So my husband had an uncle who was in Texas and he had stage four liver cancer. He was already hospice. He was already at the hospital. They didn't expect him to survive another 10 days. He was also 96. So just, you just knew he was his time. And, um, you know, sweet man. And then we get a call from his um, daughter because his wife had passed before that years ago and said that they have COVID as his reason for death on his death certificate. And she's like, Terry, we don't want that on there. She says, what do we do? And I'm like, unfortunately, if, if you try to make waves right now, you, you could re- find yourself in a problem. And that was in 2020. And you know that any doctor who came out against it was an issue. Well, then fast forward, um, she had a really tough time with that. I said, you know, you might want to open this up because of what happened in New York. New York basically kind of set the stage after all the nursing home stuff. And they said, is it with or from COVID? They said, and that was actually one of the po- most positive thing that's ever come out of New York was we want the, we want the breakdown and we're asking all of the hospitals now was the, did the patient that passed away was the death because they just had it, but they were comorbidities that actually was the reason for the death or did they pass away from COVID? And the one thing that really, if I'm wrong, what's that?
1: Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't Andrew Cuomo ultimately resign because of, what transpired at yeah. the nursing homes during well, COVID. He, I mean, no, I he know he had other scandals had with you know mistresses yep. or whatever it was. I, I I don't know. But I mean, ultimately the state of New York over exaggerated yep. the number of deaths related to COVID. So I mean well,
2: and the you know? other thing is too, is we found we looked at that death certificate for Tom's uncle, and Sean, it was post-mortem they tested him. It wasn't even it wasn't even when he was alive. So many days post-mortem, I mean, he, post-mortem. Huh, four.
1: <laughs> odds I are mean, he would have been, he, he, he wouldn't have been COVID positive.
2: No, no. So, and we don't even know if it was accurate. So that's where she actually got it changed over. So, but not until yeah. a year later, um, because they had to, because after what they did in New York, they saw that Texas took it over too and said with or from, and that's a really big deal, but just bring it back to our topic. Yeah. Things are changing. People realize they want accuracy. They, you know, they want you to do things that you can't have a money being the motivator. And so just be aware out there, folks, you know, not just with telehealth, but just with everything you need to be prepared. You need to have somebody in your office that is weeding through this regulatory information. I, we appreciate that you're listening to the podcast and we try to give you as much as possible, but you need to have the, you know, you hear Sean, a lot of times he's my walking encyclopedia for the Federal Register, you need to have somebody who has that chapter verse. So if you're ever questioned on what you're doing and why you're doing it, that you can actually refer back to, well, this part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act 2023, page 19, section 40, said this, you know, you want to make sure that you have that and why you're doing things the way you're doing them, but also make sure that your staff is updated on some of these regulatory changes. And that includes your providers. Do not let the providers get away with, just tell me how to do it. No, you need to have everybody updated of what's going to happen and what's going to change and have an, a date, you know, that you're flipping that switch. Don't wait until May 20th and go, okay, we got to tell the doctors what happened a week ago. No, don't do that. Don't do it. And I've had, even had some providers, I don't know if you've had this, Sean, uh, that have said, well, I heard that they're probably going to extend it again, that May is really not it. No, they're not. no, it's it's that's the bottom line they can't now now yeah no they they've already yeah. issued they've yeah. already issued, issued it. the governor's um, letters and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's, and, it's and
1: if we had a if we had a resurfacing another outbreak of covid you know to where it warranted a public health emergency they would have to
2: initiate a new ph a new ph you, yeah, you can't you can't use the same
1: or they'd have to rescind and yeah. uh, so i i don't know how this administration would do that
2: yeah, I don't either. So right now, and and the thing is, remember the public health emergency was all about not having a way to treat it, not having a way to deal with it, not having a way to prevent it or to minimize it. Then when they said prevent before that was wrong, but now because we have all those options, there a public health emergency virtually. And I'm saying virtually doesn't exist. Meaning that yes, we still have cases, Sean and I are not here to minimize the impact, but we now know what to do with it. And remember, this is a 97% recoverable virus. So um, people forget that too. So I just wanted to, to, you know, hopefully talk about today in a more positive note that this is something to be heads up about, make sure that everyone is um, going to their regulatory rules. You could, you can Google it and pull it up, the CAA 2023, it'll come right up for you. And just try to really read, th- uh, read through, and bookmark, and have those pages. And you need to add it to your compliance program, your compliance plan, and start setting meetings to have that training. So um, I know we're going to have a virtual. I know Namus is having a virtual conference in April. So the I think it's the fifth and sixth. I know I'm speaking at one. Brianna Santoli totally Healthcare Attorneys there. I think Sean, are you on there for uh, for, for one of the sessions? I don't remember which one the, the name is and yeah, in April.
1: Yeah. Uh, actually, I think I'm doing two. I'm doing uh, one with attorney Amanda Wesch okay. and I'm doing another one with Paul Spencer. So, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's going to be, be on two of different updates.
2: sessions. Yeah. So yeah. make sure you, you look at that, you know, NamUs.co and and also doctors management. So we can you know, you can get the updates as well. Well, that's it for me today, my friend.
1: Well, as always. It was an excellent conversation. I greatly appreciate it. Um, I hope our listeners do as well, which I am sure because as you were wrapping up what you were saying, I went on and took a look. Um, we have had just on anchor over 230,000 downloads of That's our fantastic. podcasts. Nice. Yep, so that does not include what we see in Apple is actually as big. So. We're seeing some huge numbers. Our audience continues to grow, and it's because of great content from people like yourself, um, Christine Hall, Scott Kraft, Paul Spencer, um, Jordan Johnson, all of the wonderful guests that we are able to book on this program. So thanks to each and every single one of my special guests. Thank you to my good friend, Terry Fletcher, for joining me on the hashtag Terry Tuesdays. And thank you to each and every single one of y'all who tune in, log on and hang out with me each and every single day. So I'll be back tomorrow, Wednesday, the 22nd of February with J squared and my good friend, Jordan Johnson. So until then, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care.
0: You've been listening to the compliance guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.